Well, good morning to you. Uh, as was mentioned, uh, my name's Christian, and I am not the pastor, uh, but I have opportunity of giving the message this morning, and when presented with that opportunity, um, I thought, well, what, what would be something that I could do that maybe it would be difficult for Aaron to do? And I thought, well, to preach a sermon on the subject of how to listen to a sermon. And that could be a little awkward for the pastor himself to do, so I thought, I'm going to do that for him. But it wasn't just to relieve anyone of a, an awkward situation. It was a little bit more of to visit something that we're very familiar with. And yet, often those things that we do the most, we often think the least about. We sometimes don't give them as much attention just out of sheer familiarity. And uh, so uh, I thought, well, let's do that. Let's revisit what happens when a sermon is given, and uh, how do you listen to that well, now, after we read today's passage, you might have your doubts, and so I think we should pray. Our Father, we give thanks for the privilege of being here on this morning, of rejoicing in your salvation, of singing praise to you. And Lord, uh, we have come away from a week that has been filled with cares and burdens that depict life in this world. And we admit that often our lives are shaped more by life in the world than we would wish. And so we ask that as we turn to you, that we would see you as our strong place, and that as we look in your word, that it would do what you sent it for, that it would strengthen and that would grow us, and that because of that, the gospel would look all the greater. And so we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So how to listen to a sermon. Our, our text this morning is from Acts chapter 20, and is verses uh, 6 through 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1709. Acts chapter 12, uh, yeah, sorry, 20, verses 6 through 12. And I'm actually going to pick up just a little bit before verse 6. And um, in verse 4, there's a, quite a list of names of people who are traveling. And uh, then I'm going to pick up in verse 5. Actually, my notes are wrong. It's going to be starting verse 7, the actual text for today. But I'm picking up with verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And now our text. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and had eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed." And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. 
Now, I maintain that a story like this is going to be very instructive for how to listen to a sermon, but I bet you still have your doubts, and so let's do this. This this brief account gives us a penetrating look into the life of the very early church, and we're going to look at three very important lessons that are tightly packed into this little story. And these three lessons are going to be that believers should listen to sermons intentionally, and they should listen to sermons corporately, and they should listen to sermons confidently so that the church can respond in faith. And as we go on, I'm going to try to do my best to convince you uh, that not only is this true, but that it is vital. This is one thing that grows strong Christians, and this is something that grows strong churches. So the first of these lessons is that the church should listen, listen to sermons intentionally. What I'd like to convince you of is that this little story is an account that is dripping with deep intentionality. Uh, Now, some people read this story as as if it were a bunch of people who are trapped in a room with a visiting missionary speaker who drones just on and on and on. And I would like to tell you that that is actually not the case here. Um, Just as much as Paul wanted to talk with the Christians of the Church of Troas, they wanted to hear him as well. And uh, the evidence of that, I'm going to say, is found in verse 8. So if you look at verse 8, it says that there were many lamps in the room. Now, some people looking at this might think, well, many lamps means a lot of emissions. Maybe it was kind of smoky. Maybe it was hot. Maybe that is what caused this boy Eutychus to fall asleep. Now, other people, and such as myself, would say, ah, but he was sitting in the window, right? And he probably had the best ventilation of everybody. And what I'd like you to do is take that whole debate and set it aside and ask a more important and valuable question, which is, many lamps, how did they get there? Recall that this is a day uh, of age before there were uh, church buildings. This would have been in somebody's home. Not many households would have afforded very many lamps. Very likely a lamp, a few lamps would be kept on the lower floor and they would travel up when they did things up and, and bring them with them. Oil was also expensive. And for there to have been many lamps in the room, it actually signals the mentality that many people brought them. And when they brought them, it tells us that they intended to stay late. And so I believe that this is a look into a very intentional church and a very intentional evening. Now, we're going to look at more reasons why that is in a moment. But right now, I'd like you to see that this shows us something important. And it's this. When a church listens intentionally, it shows us that Christianity is not a form of mysticism. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, mysticism is a form of spirituality that puts a very high value on experience. Um, As a matter of fact, mysticism would say something that experience is going to be the most important ingredient in the spiritual life. It would answer the question of how do I grow with a, a list of experiences that you should be feeling, 
Um, and those experiences, they might make you excited. Uh, they might make you feel deeply connected to spiritual reality. And they might be filled with you know, good vibes and a wish that you could remain in such a state. Now, before I go any further on this, I, I do want to make it clear that Christianity is very experiential. Um, it is permeated with deep, reaching words, like the word conversion. That is a very significant experience in which a person admits, I really believe this. Um, the word worship is also a deeply experiential word for Christianity as well, and so would be baptism and fellowship, prayer, and praise. And these are, these are rich with meanings that have deep roots into our soul, and they are deep-reaching experiences. Um, so even though I'm going to criticize what I will call mysticism, I'm not trying to sideline all experience. But I will tell you this, Christianity has problems when it gets understood primarily in mystical or experiential terms, because that does not value words like teaching, like discipleship, like apologetics, and very important things like that. And the reason why I bring this up is that when Christians become lazy, they often have a sort of functional mysticism. In other words, they identify, I am a Christian, and I want to live for God, but I'm not really working. I'm not really learning. I'm not really engaging. But I hope that some experience will come along and will make up the difference. And I would call that functional mysticism. And what I'm trying to say is that our passage today shows a very different posture. Uh, so much so that, let me, let me point something out to you and show this. Um, in verse 7, it describes the church as having gathered together to break bread. Now, what do you think that means? Well, in, in Christianity, they adopted the phrase, break bread, to reach back to when Jesus broke bread with his disciples. And so one thing that the church quickly began doing was they began labeling their church service as a gathering to break bread. And in that, there would often be a fellowship meal. And in the center of that, in the most valuable place, it would be taking communion together. Now, taking communion together is actually a very experiential uh, uh, thing that the church that the church does. As a matter of fact, the better you understand the meaning of communion, the more experiential uh, of, a, of, of something it is. And somebody who is, uh, is mystically kind of inclined will say, wow, this is great. This is filled with good and rich and deep vibes. And you know what? I wouldn't actually discourage that. But I would quickly point out that at this time, when they gather to break bread, Paul teaches the entire night through. And teaching and experience in the Christian life are knit together, and both of them are designed to grow healthy Christians and healthy churches. And, and so the posture of this church is that it's fine for Paul to teach like that. You see, Christianity is filled not only with things you need to experience, it is also filled with things that you need to know. It has history. It has theology. It can ask questions, and it can answer questions. And this is evidenced 
by what we see in this church in Troas. And so they intentionally listened to Paul. Paul had information that they wanted to know or knew they needed to know, and so they showed up. And so this brings us to a second point. And that point is when a church listens intentionally, it values good teachers. Since Christianity has content that is supposed to be learned, it's important that there be good teachers to help believers learn. And our story here in Acts 20 shows us that the church in Troas sees the opportunity of Paul being there to teach them. Now, I'm going to tell you that their case was a little different than ours. Uh, For one thing, this church did not have the New Testament. This story is before that New Testament is written out. So on the one hand, they didn't have that, but on the other hand, they had an apostle. And that's what Paul was. So in the days before the New Testament was written, the church relied on the teaching of the the apostles to inform them of what the gospel is and how to live by it. And this church in Troas does not appear to be a church that Paul planted. Now, he was a missionary apostle. His job was to be planting and instructing churches all over. But in, in Acts chapter 16, in verses 8 through 10, it looks like Paul only passed through town. It says this, So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul also mentions that he greeted believers in Troas, but he didn't stay with them. And so our passage this morning reflects that this was the first time and the only time that Paul had to really engage deep with the believers in Troas. And we actually see later in this very chapter that he had a deep weight upon his soul. And he intended to leave the very next day. And so basically everybody learned from the example of college students and they pulled an all-nighter. And what Paul said that night was probably going to be very similar to what he had been telling other churches all along the line. And so here's a good question. What would happen after Paul left? I mean, like, what would happen the next Sunday when they didn't have Paul, the apostle, to teach them? Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. The next Sunday, a teacher in the church would have repeated some of what Paul had told them. And he would help the church to understand that a little better and how it applied to the life of the church and how to live it out. If you think about it, that's really what is supposed to happen today. Some of what the apostles taught gets pulled out and it gets explained a little bit better and a little bit further to the church, and they become equipped to help to live it out. So you see, pastors, teachers, and elders, guys like that, are not allowed to invent new teaching. That would be called heresy. Instead, they explain the teachings of the apostles, and they help the church to understand and follow it. 
And what I'll tell you is that everything that you need to know about what the apostles taught has been recorded into the New Testament. And so our situation today really isn't all that different from their situation back then. And when you understand this, I believe it helps a church to be intentional. And it places a high value on good teachers. The church should help them do their job by freeing them up to teach well and by showing up to get the best benefit. Now, one last thing on the subject of listening intentionally. When a church listens intentionally, it makes preparations to listen. So we saw that this church in Troas brought many lamps, and that was their preparation to stay late. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know that you should feel that you have to bring a lamp to church, but what I will encourage you to bring a mindset, a mindset of I am here, and I'm here to hear God's word explained, and I'm here to learn. A couple things could help you. Here's a few ideas. Bring a Bible. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the importance of a Bible, um, but... In addition to bringing a Bible, bring something to scribble on and take notes or write down questions or thoughts. If you're not a good note taker, then uh, just take a picture of somebody else's notes that did take good notes. Okay, here's something else that evidences an intentional mindset. Bring a calendar. Many of the things that you would need to know to take the next step in your Christian walk is the kind of thing that actually could be written on a calendar, a reminder, a Uh, an appointment to connect with someone, or some time scheduled to read something important or to make a phone call. If you can, invest in a good night's sleep. But if you can't invest in a good night's sleep, come anyway. You know, we have coffee back over there. We were a young family. Coffee's the only way that I survived. Come anyway, and just don't sit next to the window. And so I'm saying that a church should listen intentionally to sermons. But there's another aspect found in today's story, and it will be this, that I believe believers should listen to sermons corporately. I think this is an important part of the story. Now, later on, we're going to get to the awkward situation of where the boy falls out of the window. But first, let's just think about the fact that he, a youth, was in the room at all. You know, if you think about it, in today's day of age, if a prominent Christian leader came and spent a week with us, you would very likely think that maybe a special uh, sermon or two would be lined up for the benefit of the whole church and a service conducted. But then most people would go home, and those really deep, late-night conversations, you know what they would happen with? Between that guy and the church leaders, right? That would be the most natural way that you would understand an event like that to have happened. And instead, you actually see in this moment Paul treating everybody the very same. Everybody is in on the deep late-night conversation where people are losing track of time. Now, on the one hand, that might be a look into a special set of circumstances that applied to them. But on another hand, I think it looks 
into the mindset of the corporate church. And, and, and so here's, here's what I want to communicate to you. When believers listen corporately, it models the early church. So I think it was perfectly expected that Eutychus would be in the room. Uh, but when Paul writes letters to churches, he actually expects everyone to be in the room where that letter is going to be read uh, aloud. And so in his letter to Colossians, as well as his letter to the Ephesians, Paul expected children to be present. And he actually wrote a special instruction just to them. Um, and uh, in his letters, Paul addresses husbands. He addresses wives. He addresses servants. He addresses masters, elders, deacons, children, and even people by name. And he expects the church to be listening corporately. Now, I believe that there's an advantage to this, and it is an additional point under listening to sermons corporately. This point is when believers listen corporately, it furthers application. It is good for a church, I believe, to hear what Peter says to elders in 1 Peter 5 because it equips the church to help those elders to do their job. It also equips the church to identify who might make good elders in the future, right? Um, It is good for the whole church to hear what Paul told children in Ephesians 6 because that equips the church to help believing children grow in their need to obey Paul's instructions to them. In like manner, I would say it is good for the whole church to hear what Paul says to the fathers so the whole church can assist them in their task and hold them accountable if they don't. And so I would say that listening to sermons corporately assists the church to disciple one another in the common goal of living the Christian life. And it ought to greatly further the opportunity for application. But in this vein, there is one more thing that I'd like to point out. And it's this, that when believers listen corporately, it shows that the gospel is working. Now, that might sound a little odd to you. So let me explain. I want to try to make a case that there is a special visual statement that is made when a people gathers together and hears God's word being taught. And that statement does not get made when, if the same people were just simply to log on and listen to that sermon individually. So to do this, let me remind you that the Much of the Bible depicts a terrible relationship between God's word and the heart of man. So we see that in Genesis, creation itself comes into being because it obeys God's word. And as a matter of fact, further down through the Bible, if you follow what creation does, creation always obeys and listens to and heeds God's word, and creation is made glorious because of it. But the Bible is clear to point out that it is man. Man is the part of creation that disobeyed God's word. And ever since that happened, the heart of man wants to follow his own word. 
And, and so, so much of the Old Testament depicts an agonizing story. The more that God would send his word, the less man would seem to listen. In fact, when you get to the Gospels, it shows the very lengths that man would go to not take Jesus seriously as God's word. And with that in view, when a church gathers and sits and hears God's word being taught, it shows that something has changed. What it shows is that the gospel has worked. It has restored men and women back into fellowship with God's word as if they were on speaking terms to each other. And that tells the world the gospel has worked. And can you see how that is visually represented when a people come together That is a powerful reason to listen to sermons corporately. Now, I'm not saying never listen to one individually. Um, I have done that frequently. But value, value the church when it comes together to listen to God's word. So I think it, it is valuable to listen to sermons intentionally and also to listen corporately. And we have one last thing that, I want us to consider, and it's this. The church should listen to sermons confidently. What do I mean by this? Well, first of all, the church should listen to sermons confidently because of sound teaching. So if if the sermon is truly drawn from the strength and character of God's word, then the church should have great confidence. You see, the word of God is designed to grow and to yield a harvest, and the church should listen with that expectation that God's word will do its work. And the church should have a confidence that God wants to inform us of how we should think and how we should live, and sound teaching is a very important part of how that happens. Now, I would have to point out that this does require that a sermon actually does reflect God's word, right? That is a good reason to bring your Bible. I appreciated the way a couple of pastors who wrote a book about preaching uh, put it. Uh, They put this, first, the nature of preaching as the heralding of God's word means that any and all Christian preaching necessarily derives its authority from being rooted in and tethered to God's word, the scriptures. Put more sharply, anything that is not rooted in and tethered tightly to God's word is not preaching at all. It's just a speech. And so this emphasis is on sound teaching. When the teaching is sound, confidence should go up. When we do understand things better, our confidence grows. Your confidence grows. When we believe things better and more clearly, our confidence grows as well. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe undoubtedly that happened this evening in Troas, when the church gathered to hear Paul. Uh, But it is also clear to me that God intended something extra special for this church that night. And so let me explain to you that the church should listen confidently because God authenticated his word. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this Eutychus incident. And I'm, I'm sorry I put it off so long. This is a very important part of the, of the passage, of the story. And in order for you to get the most out of it, I want you to kind of uh, hang on to uh, several things I'm going to point out to you right now. And bear these things in mind. And the, the first is this, that the word Eutychus, that name means fortunate, which could sound a little ironic. Um, likely, Eutychus had to work all that day. Nobody got Sunday off in that era of time. So Eutychus probably worked all day and then went to church that evening. And it is highly likely that being a younger man, he had deferred to others to give them the best seats in the room. And so he probably just took the seat, uh, perching on the window. Another thing that you need to know is that it probably was very embarrassing for Eutychus that Luke, who wrote this account of the book of Acts, that Luke wrote his name down. You know, there's a lot of stories in the book of Acts that doesn't include people's names. Eutychus probably lived for a good long while afterwards. And can you imagine what life would have been like? Traveling Christians through town. Oh, you're Eutychus. Hmm. Also, you should know that Luke, who wrote this account, was a medical doctor. That had been his profession before becoming a missionary. And the last thing is that Luke makes it clear that he personally was there and saw this. And so if you look at verse 7... He uses the phrase, we were gathered, which means that Luke was right there when all this went down. Now, I'd like you to try to use your imagination to insert yourself into the story if you can. Imagine that you are part of the church in Troas. And um, remember that Paul had likely taught this church very similar to how he had taught and instructed many other churches And so likely the content of what Paul was going through would have been very similar to things and themes that you would find in the book of Colossians, in the book of Galatians, in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and so on. Many powerful themes where Paul was probably teaching about how God had provided salvation through Christ and through the cross, how the scriptures had foretold this all along, and then very practical aspects of how the church can go on trusting God even through difficult times. And you probably would have been soaking it up, and you probably would have been thinking to yourself, this is great. And then right in the midst of all of this, fortunate falls to his death. Now, recall that there is a doctor in the house. And the boy is clearly dead. Luke doesn't even tell us that there was a fight for his life. He simply says that, He was picked up dead. And I don't care who you are. I think that if you were there this evening, 
I think that your heart would have been shaken. Um, I think your heart would have been saying, if this teaching is true, and if I can trust God like that, couldn't God have prevented this from happening? Don't you think that would be reasonable? See, you might not have only questioned if you should have gone that night. You might have realized everything that I know about this faith is being conveyed through the teaching of this one guy. And should I really commit my life that much to it? So I think it's kind of significant that the only thing that Paul is recorded, that Paul said that entire night, is this statement, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Even though the medical doctor looks like he agreed that the boy was dead. There's a, a similar story that is found in 1 Kings 17. And this is a story about Elijah and a widow and her son. And during a famine time, uh, Elijah had come and asked the widow, actually instructed the widow to provide for him. She obeyed in faith, and God miraculously kept uh, refilling (laughs) their supply. And so they're living out this famine. And then in the midst of it, the boy grows sick, and he dies. And the mother is more than heartbroken. And the story is uh, re- re- recorded for us. She, she had been hanging all her hopes on God, and God had been providing and stuff, but then what was even worse to her has now come about, and her son has died. And, and in great turmoil, she says this to Elijah. She says, what have you against me? Like, aren't you the man of God? Couldn't you have stopped this from happening? And now my everything has been taken. And, and in that story, Elijah does some very undoctor-like stuff. And you can clearly tell that you don't do this to, 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 to put jumper cables and restart somebody's heart or something. What Elijah does there uh, is... is is odd, and it's actually very similar to what Paul does here. But then he presents the boy alive. He presents the boy raised from the dead, and it is clear that the power of God has done this. And her response is this. She says, now I know that you are a man of God, and get this, that the word of the Lord is in, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. And what she realized is that God authenticated not just the event that she would have her her son back. God authenticated all of the work that he was doing through Elijah because of that miracle. And what I'm telling you is that that is probably what very likely happened that night in Troas. Many people, having listened to great teaching about Jesus, about God's plan of salvation, about life in the church, and how to trust God, was authenticated by the fact that Eutychus was raised from the dead. And you, if you were there, would feel that you could trust this teaching. 
And so the text tells us, it says it this way, they were not moderately comforted. You know what that means? It means that they were exceptionally comforted. They were greatly strengthened. This was the kind of thing that would carry them for years and years and years of probably difficult life representing Christ. Now, in the morning, there's also something else that, that, is, a, that is told to us. It says, they took the youth away alive. Let's think about that just a minute. You know, the emphasis is, well, he was, he's alive now, right? But did you understand that in that, it means that the church escorted Eutychus home? They took the youth away alive and were not moderately comforted. There's something special here, and we'll come back to it, because it's pretty clear this boy, this youth, he's not alone. You know, I, I do suspect that stories like this might make you, might make me wish that we had seen that miracle too, right? But I would like you to bear in mind the fact that of all the city of Troas, only a handful of people saw it. This happened in a house church packed with people, but even the family that lived just down, further down that street, had no idea this took place until they heard testimony, until they heard people saying, I saw this. This happened. That's why I am confident in being a believer and that the message about Jesus and his kingdom is true. And the invitation, join me. You know, that's something important for us to think about. God used many miracles to prove that his gospel is true. But the account of those miracles actually primarily relies on credible witness and testimony to them. People saying, I witnessed this, I, I saw it happen. What Paul says is true, what the Bible says is true. You know, that's not very different for us today because what you have in front of you is Luke's account that this happened. Let me add one other thing. I believe the reason why Luke tells the name Eutychus was so that anyone who read this account in that first generation could actually go to Troas and ask. Do you, do you understand that that is one reason why names are mentioned in the Bible? Uh, this account would have been written within years of this happening, or maybe even less than that time. And people could go to Troas and say, oh, so is Eutychus here? Yes, there he is, living evidence that this happened. And do you know that even though uh, the witness and testimony was provided so specifically, Nobody was contesting this. No one was saying, oh, Eutychus, he didn't fall out of the window. I bet you the city was abuzz with it. And the people had opportunity over and over to testify, yeah, that was true. So what Paul said is true. These things then call for a response. And I would say the church should evidence confidence by responding in faith. You know, if you're here today and if you are not a believer, well, I'm glad that you came. I think that there is a significant application to you in today's message, and it may be a struggle. 
You see, many people do wish that God would give them a proof that Christianity is true. Is that not right? And the lesson here in this text is that God has already given his proof. The attestation that Jesus rose from the dead has already been given, including also this this attestation that Eutychus was risen from the dead. And credible witness and testimony has been provided and furnished to the world. You need to grapple with whether you will accept God's proof, which is recorded in credible testimony. And as you do so, I would encourage you to go on listening to sermons. Listen to sermons from people who really trust the Bible, not nifnarfy therapeutic stuff that sounds just like the American dream with Christian terms thrown in. No, listen to genuine preaching from the Bible and watch believers as they listen to. Now, if you're here today and you are a young believer, I believe this message holds out a lot of stuff that's important for you to know and apply to. But I want you to not stress out about information overload. And so a sermon like this or any other sermon, you could always go back and re-listen to. They're easy to find. But I want you to get a hold of what I think is one of the most important parts an application point. You see, if you are a believer and if you are growing in Christ, you will have moments that look like Eutychus. There will be times when one moment life is exciting and fresh and exhilarating, and the next it looks like a crumpled and lifeless heap. And I don't know exactly how it's going to look like for you. Um, It could be the death of a loved one. It could be being tripped up unexpectedly by a sin, a depressing visitation uh, from your past. It could be any one of a great number of things. Now, at one level, Eutychus-like moments can be very embarrassing. And at another level, Eutychus-like moments can be absolutely devastating. And your faith will be tested, and it will be tested hard, and so will your confidence Am I willing to continue to commit my life to this? And one thing that I cannot do is promise you or assure you that a miracle will just happen and make everything good. But I can do two things for you. I can tell you something, and I can ask you a question. What I can tell you is that you can and should trust God. In part of listening to sermons should enable your confidence to be growing so that trust is there when those times of testing come. But by our text, I also need to ask you a question. You see, when those moments come and faith is tested and life is hard and the best, at best, things are embarrassing and at worst, things are disillusioning, in those moments, who is in your life? that can walk you home. You know, I think it's significant that Eutychus took his fall in view of the church. And then who is it that walks him home? That same church. And that is something 
to think about. And I guess what I'm trying to persuade you of is this. The best people who can walk you home are people who have listened to sermons the way that we've talked about this morning. Where do you find them? In church. Now, that means that I also need to talk to the rest of us. Do you ever get the impression that an unstated rule of the Christian life is to never look like Eutychus? It kind of comes across like this. If you are a good Christian, you won't do things that are embarrassing, and you won't get devastated either. I believe that that impression drives Christians into solitary lives. I think it creates a false picture of what a healthy church looks like. Um, I grew up in a family that was highly regarded in the church, and I think that there was a tendency for others to believe that our family just never fell out of windows. In fact, that was not true. Um, I have to put it this way. We were so bad at falling out of windows, we could never do it gracefully. So I'd like to tell you that not too long ago, um, I had a Eutychus-like moment, and I made Aaron be the guy to walk me home. And he is a good walk-you-homer. However, if you noticed in our story today, the teaching figure, Paul, leaves And it's the church that walks Eutychus home. Are you ready for something like that? If someone in your life or in your church takes a fall, are you prepared to walk that person home? So if you're here and if you've been a believer for a long, long time, I think there are things that you still need to think about. Perhaps listening to sermons is something so familiar that you don't think about it much anymore. You're happy that the right things were said. Maybe you need to rethink that. Perhaps you need to be praying about ways God can put to work the good things that you have learned through good teaching and sermons. Perhaps you need to recognize when someone around you takes a fall. Maybe you need to reevaluate your calendar so that it is flexible so that you could have the time to walk someone home. And then last, if you are here today and if we are a church, I think that an application is that for a church that listens well to sermons, the quality of a sermon should echo a long, long time in the life of that church. People pull out good teaching and remind each other of it. They encourage each other when life is tough. They smooth out things when life is embarrassing. They carry each other when life is devastating. A church that listens well to sermons grows in grace and truth, and it is clear that the gospel is at work. I guess that what I'm saying is that if you cut a church like that open, good things will ooze out.
And that is why we should listen to sermons. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word and that it is designed to not return to you void, but is designed to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We give thanks that you have not only provided your word, but you have provided the apostles first to proclaim it and teach it, that it has been recorded, that teachers, pastors, elders uh, today can explain what your word means and help the church understand and benefit and grow in your gospel. And we pray that as a church, we would listen to sermons well, that in so doing, we would grow as a result, that you would put us to work for your kingdom, that we would not live in fear of falling out of windows, but instead to be each other, uh, there for each other when that does happen. And we pray that these things would so work to show your mighty gospel accomplishing its work in and through our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name.